Jesus. Can I invite you to turn back to Exodus chapter 6? We read arguably some of the most important verses of Exodus earlier. We, we heard God speak to Moses. He gives him a renewed vision of who he is. He once again tells him to go to Pharaoh and be his people's deliverer. And before we hear what happens next, the flow of the story is interrupted, curiously, by Moses and his brother Aaron's genealogy. And so we pick up the reading at chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanoch, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jahin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, these are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
Before we go any further, why don't we pray for God's help? Lord Almighty, our Heavenly Father, as we turn to Exodus once again, please help us to see clearly who you are and what you have done for us. Help us to gain greater understanding and confidence in the truth that you are a God who is comprehensively committed to saving your people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us for our series through Exodus, or if you're familiar with the opening chapters of this book, did you get a sense of deja vu as we read the first few verses of chapter 6? They're an echo of God's self-revelation from back in chapter 3. Back then, God disclosed His personal name and what it meant. And God has been all about revealing who He is in Exodus thus far. In chapters 1 and 2, God is revealed as the faithful God who controls all things and can be trusted to work out His purposes in the world, even when He seems to have forgotten His people. And in chapters 3 through 7, over the last couple of weeks, we learn both the name of God, I am who I am, and also His unshakable commitment to save His people. God's people are still in slavery, though. Things have got harder, not better. And in chapter 6, verse 9, we've got a tragic description of the mood in the Israelite camp. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Why does God reintroduce Himself here? Why the re-reveal of His name? Because God's people really need to know who the Lord is. Every day, gathering straw to make bricks just builds tension and sets the scene for God's reintroduction in verses 2 through 8. You'll notice in those verses, those opening verses of chapter 6, at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of this speech, the words, I am the Lord, are there. That is what God reminds Moses of in verse 2, what Moses is to start with when he addresses the Israelites in verse 6, and what he is to end with in verse 8. God's people then, and us today, we need to know who God is in order to relate to Him rightly, to make sense of life, to have confidence that even when things get worse and not better, the God who revealed himself in Exodus and in the person of Jesus, what the Exodus pointed forwards to, he is for us, he loves us, he will rescue us. And that last bit is our first point. In his reintroduction, God wants us to be absolutely clear that He is the God who rescues. And the Lord who rescues does that by being faithful to His promises. Turn to verses 2 to 5 with me. Did you notice that the repetition of the word covenant and the throwback to Israel's patriarchs? God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and He will keep those promises. In those verses, we read God saying, I am the Lord, 
I established my covenant. I have remembered my covenant. God never forgot His promises, but the Exodus reveals that God keeps His promises, and so we can trust these promises. Verse 3 is interesting, isn't it? I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. The verse seems to suggest that this is the first time God has revealed His personal name, Yahweh. Uh, The problem with this is that the word Yahweh is used in Genesis loads of times. It could be that the writer of Genesis is reading back and uh, into the narrative the name he now knows for God. However, a better explanation is that the term Yahweh was known before, but God is about to give it a new level of meaning through the Exodus. What Yahweh means is now at last to, going to be revealed. Not, not as a, a new or different God, but as the, the same God more fully known. And what is it that God wants us to know about Himself? Crucially, and we can't stress this enough tonight, the Lord is the God who rescues His people. Shall we read verses 6 through 8 again? I think that would be really helpful. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. We, we saw last week that chapter 5 set up the showdown between Pharaoh and God. And what we'll see in the Exodus, put simply, is that God wins. The the rule of the most powerful ruler that the world has um, ever seen will be broken because God will stretch out His arm and rescue His people. It's a great picture of power His arm reaches out to accomplish whatever He purposes, just as you might stretch out your arm over the dinner table to grab the salt or the bottle of sriracha. So God stretches out His arm to shake up Egypt. And did you notice the the use of a a key Bible word in verse 6? This is one of the the first times the word redeem is used in the Bible story. And the Hebrew verb to redeem, ga'al, is one of the loveliest in meaning and massively important in the Old Testament. We we may remember that a, a redeemer was the close relative responsible for avenging a murdered relative, redeeming an enslaved relative, or providing an heir for a deceased relative. You may remember Boaz in the story of Ruth. He was a kinsman redeemer. And so, in short, a redeemer was a close relative who acted as an avenger, a protector, a provider, even if that involved personal loss. Well, the the Lord has already described Himself as Israel's father back in chapter 4, verse 22. He's their kinsman. And verse 6 in our chapter tells us that He is the kinsman redeemer of His people. He will act as Israel's avenger, 
and protector and provider, even when that involves personal loss. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Maybe when you think of Boaz, it evokes uh, warm feelings. Maybe you're reminded of his kindness. Here is the Lord, Yahweh, the one who redeems his people. And it's all God's initiative. Did you notice the force of the statements in those opening verses? I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. The Lord is the Savior of His people. He is comprehensively committed to His rescue plan. He is the God who rescues. But God doesn't just deliver or redeem from slavery. He redeems Israel so that they will be His people. Later on in Exodus chapter 15, Israel will sing to God of how you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy dwelling. Exodus is the story of redemption from slavery in Egypt and for life in the presence of God. And we read in verses 7 and 8, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the, the first instance in the Bible where the phrase, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God is used. It's the first time of many. It's going to recur throughout the Bible's story. In fact, it's like a, a refrain for the whole Bible. It keeps coming up until we see John's vision of the new creation in Revelation chapter 21. John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, this speech here in Exodus, in verses 6 to 8, is, it's a key statement of intent for the whole Bible story, the great history of God redeeming us from slavery to sin and death so that we might be his people living in his new world. He redeems us to be his people so we can trust him to love, lead, and care for us. Aren't these verses incredible? These verses tell us that the Lord keeps his word in verse 4. He feels our woes in verse 5. He sets us free in verse 6. He brings us close to himself in verses 6 and 7, and he will eventually lead us home in verse 8. Faithfulness and empathy, deliverance, intimacy, and inheritance, all embraced by God's name. I am the Lord. Imagine being unmoved 
by such a declaration. But that, however, was what Moses and the rest failed to believe. Israel, it seems, are slumped so deep in discouragement that they are unmoved by this revelation of the Lord's name and purposes. The ultimate revelation of God's name will be in the Exodus itself. And so in verses 10 and 11, the Lord moves the events towards the confrontation that will reveal his power by again sending Moses to Pharaoh. Who then is the Lord? In what way do these verses add to what was held back in Genesis about Yahweh? Well, God, as he reveals what it means to be the Lord, invites Israel to know him as the God who delivers, the God who rescues his people from their affliction and leads them to the promised land, the land he promised to their ancestors. It's a a whole-scale rescue. And for the people in slavery in Egypt, he's going to achieve that in part through a couple of octogenarian brothers, which leads to our, our second point, the Lord's chosen redeemer. Verses 13 to 29 are interesting, aren't they? I'm sure Mark was very glad that the reading cut off when it did. So why the Ancestry.com report? Why the the family history lesson? I don't know if you've ever done a a 23andMe or have traced your family tree. It can be quite fun. My mother's maiden name is Alvarado. Uh, which is so Spanish, it's not even funny. Um, Gonzalo and Pedro Alvarado were conquistadors. The latter considered the conquistador of much of Central America. My mum and her relatives, however, look very ethnically Peruvian. I did some digging um, as a project in school, and you can only trace the name in our family so far back before you have to speculate quite wildly about how these indigenous Peruvian folk have a conquistador name. It can be quite fun to discover where you came from and who you belong to, but why do we have this genealogy here? It starts with three sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. There are a bunch of weird names that are hard to pronounce. Jamin and Mushi are my favorites. But if we pay close attention, Levi's sons become the focus. And that's really important. And so this is here to to show the lineage of Moses and Aaron to show that he and Aaron come from true priestly heritage. And the text is emphatic. In verse 26, I don't know if you noticed it, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. And then at the end of verse 27 again, this Moses and this Aaron. So so why does this need to be here? Well, remember that Moses has appeared out of the desert, claiming to be a man called by God to lead his people. 
but now the people have begun to doubt him. Perhaps people remember Moses' upbringing in Pharaoh's court or his brief appearance at their workplace, maybe his long spell in Midian. They doubt his allegiance or even his heritage. So now there is every reason to demonstrate that they are authentic members of God's people. This is God's chosen redeemer, and he's got the credentials as well as God's calling to lead God's rescue plan. I'd love for us to apply these these first two points. And so, imagine with me just for a moment an Israelite mother leading her, her small children out of Egypt. She must have been full of doubt. Was this a good idea? Wandering off into the desert with small children? Who is the Lord? Can they trust him? Can they trust this Moses and Aaron? Then imagine her holding her children as they pass through the sea with the walls of water on either side. That is why she can have confidence. The the exodus is the revelation of God's name to God's people. He is the Lord who keeps His promises, loves and rescues His people. And if you and I are to follow God, whether that takes us to the Middle East or the middle of a scheme in Scotland, a nearby coffee shop or an office, then we must know who He is. And when we know who He is, then we see that we must follow Him. Every new day is a day when you and I can live trusting God and obeying God. And you will only do that if you know that He is the Lord. And if you know that He is the Lord, then you will do exactly that. You may have become a a Christian fairly recently, and maybe instead of getting better, life has got harder. Or your life may not have worked out the way you hoped. Your dreams remain mere dreams. And so you're tempted to complain, just like Moses and and the Israelites, excuse me. What did God say to them? He said, you will see what I will do. I am the Lord. And what does God say to you and me today? Well, it's something better, actually. You have seen what I have done. You have seen it in the Exodus or you certainly will as you continue reading or coming back on Sunday evenings. But crucially, you have seen it in the cross and the resurrection. There you have seen that He is the Lord who keeps His promises. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, says 2 Corinthians. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt His kindness, when you're struggling to trust Him when life gets harder rather than better, 
Look to the wooden cross and the empty tomb. See how God keeps his promises. God also says to us, you have seen that I am the Lord who redeems his people from death to give them a life. Colossians 1 says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption. If you've been studying Mark all through this year, you'll remember just from a couple of weeks ago, for the son of man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as the redemption price for many. It's at the cross that our redemption is secured, at the cross that his loving care is written out in large letters across the canvas of history. God has promised I will redeem redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And ultimately, that promise found its fulfillment as Jesus died. There was a mighty act of judgment. But the judgment fell not on God's enemies, but on God himself in the person of his Son, Jesus redeems us to be God's people by dying for us. And so, when you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt His kindness, when you're struggling to trust Him, when life gets harder rather than better, look to the cross. See how God Himself bears His own judgment out of love for you to redeem you. If you're struggling to obey God, you don't need more willpower. You need to know God more. The book of Exodus is a a revelation of the name of God, of the character of God, so that we might know Him better and relate to Him rightly. And so, my encouragement to you as we continue our series through Exodus is pray as you read it, delve deep into its pages, not just to get more information and fun facts, but so that you might encounter God. Seek the Lord that you might know Him better and so serve Him better, both when life gets better and when life gets harder. He is the Lord who keeps His promises, who redeems His people, who is comprehensively committed to His people's salvation. Finally, and and quite briefly, the Lord rescues, and and there's, there's nuance in this rescue, it's through great acts of judgment. We touched on that a little bit already, but shall we read the, the first few verses of chapter 7 again? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. No one told him what to do. He was the one who gave the orders. And then Moses and Aaron turn up and inform Pharaoh of God's plan to rescue his people. Uh, authority is tied to the identity of the person making a command. We obey when we recognize a higher authority. We obey gladly when we recognize a higher trustworthy and good authority. Pharaoh's question back in chapter 5, who is the Lord that I should obey him, was just another way of saying, what gives this God of slaves a right to issue commands to me, the king of Egypt, a living deity? Ultimately, it's God, not Moses, that Pharaoh is taking on. God is not surprised by Pharaoh's refusal to listen. We see that in verses 2 through 4. He predicted it back in chapter 3, and now he predicts that it will continue in verses 4 and 5. How will God show himself to be the great rescuing God to Pharaoh? We're told, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And we're told again in verse 3 that God will multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Those signs and wonders include the plagues that we'll consider as of next Sunday evening. And the purpose of the plagues is that Egypt might know that I am the Lord. God's identity will be revealed through the words of two 80-something-year-olds and the mighty deeds of the eternal God. You may have questions about the nature of God's judgment or about who hardened Pharaoh's heart. I'd love to pick that up with you after the service. We'll certainly see more of that as the weeks go on in our Exodus series. But just for now, this is the real God of the universe, the I am who I am God. He has chosen to tell us what he's like, and he delivers anyone who turns to trust in Jesus because he is the God who delivers. His judgment is real. It should cause us to tremble, but he is comprehensively committed to rescuing. Is that how you think of God? Maybe you're investigating Christian things. It's great you're here. I hope you've seen that this is a God worth finding out about. He's offering an amazing rescue, if it's anything like it was back then in the days of Exodus. A rescue we should all want to hear more about. And you can do that by joining us again on a Sunday or coming to one of the short intro courses to Christianity that we run or reading the historical accounts of Jesus's life. You could read it with a Christian friend or join one of our midweek Bible studies. I've been really challenged over the last couple of weeks. I know that rescue happens in the gospel 
but do I talk about God as a, a rescuing God? Not just that God happens to rescue, but that it is integral to his character. When he creates an opportunity to introduce himself to the world, he presents his acts of deliverance front and center. And so failure to see God as a God who delivers is a failure to know God. Think about the God you think about when you speak to other Christians or when you pray. Think about the God you present when you're explaining the gospel or your faith. If our God is a God of love and peace and patience and wisdom, but, but not a God who rescues, then we're creating a God who is essentially different to the one who reveals himself here. The Lord is a God who delivers, a God who rescues. As we get older and travel through the Christian life, there's a constant temptation to doubt this about God for all of us. Is he really going to deliver us? Across the world, persecution is rife. Maybe slavery to sin now feels like more of a problem than it did before. Battling sin is a greater battle. You notice failure more frequently. It feels more like Exodus 5, life getting harder, not easier. To paraphrase Moses, it feels like God hasn't delivered you at all. Has God really got it covered? Will he really deliver us? The book of Exodus invites us to look at God as he defines himself, to look at his acts as recorded in this book and throughout the Bible, and ultimately to look at the person of Jesus and see that deliverance is part of who God is. Let me just close by reading some of the central verses from our passage, just with a slight change. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of sin, and I will deliver you from slavery to it, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of sin. I will bring you into the new creation that I swore to give to you. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God's got it covered. He will deliver us. That is who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as a God who delivers us. We praise you that as people trusting in the Lord Jesus, we can have confidence that you offer us such deliverance. Please help us to cling to that promise daily and to know you more and more so that we might relate to you rightly more and more. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our time by